Good morning. Welcome to our uh, Sunday morning worship sermon. Uh, it is January 31st, 2021. We are Calvary Baptist Church. Uh, we are live from uh, Phillipsburg, Kansas. We are about an hour, um, actually about 30 minutes south of the Nebraska-Kansas line. We are north central Kansas. Uh, we got about 10 inches of snow this past week. Um, it looks beautiful and, and we're grateful for uh, the wet season. Uh, we're also thankful to be able to uh, preach the word online and, and over uh, YouTube and the other podcasts that we have, such as Anchor FM, Spotify, Apple Podcast, and as well as uh, Church Podcast. Uh, we are going through the book of Acts in our 11 a.m. service, our 10 a.m. service. We are going through the 1689 Confession. And we've learned a lot uh, studying both the Confession and uh, the Book of Acts. After the Book of Acts, we should end in, in a few weeks. Uh, we're going we're going to go through First Peter. And so we're we're excited for that. Uh, we're also excited that you've decided to join us, that you've listened to our podcast, that you subscribe and and keep up with us. And, and our hope is that you're blessed, that through the teaching and preaching ministry of our church, you and your family are blessed. Uh, God is using the teaching uh, to turn you into the image of Christ. Uh, he's using the scripture as a means of grace to sanctify you. Before we begin our study of chapter 27, uh, I ask that you go ahead and pause the podcast and read verses 1 through 44. And once you're done with that, that you would come back and you would hit play and you would listen to the rest of this teaching. Um, and in our church, I have placed in our bulletins a map of Paul's voyage to Rome. Um, the chapter is pretty lengthy. It's 44 verses, uh, but it's easy to navigate once you uh, divide the chapter into different scenes. Uh, so there are two major parts to Acts chapter 27. The first part uh, describes Paul's voyage from Caesarea. He boards a ship uh, called the Adramidium, and he sails to Myra. And then the second part of Acts chapter 27 is Paul's trip from Myra to where he shipwrecked on the island of Malta aboard the ship Alexandrian. And so those are the two major parts. Part one, Paul leaves Caesarea. He sails to Malta on the Adramidium. And then from Malta, he sails to, um, or from Myra, he sails to Malta on the Alexandrian. Of these two major parts, there are seven smaller scenes. And I think it would be wise for us to approach the text systematically, scene by scene, so that we would have a better understanding of the scripture. So scene one, scene one is verses one through eight, 
And this is the initial phase of Paul's trip to Rome and some difficulties. According to Luke, the decision to send Paul to Rome was finally made by Festus and King Agrippa. If you remember from chapter 26, after Paul preaches the gospel before Agrippa, the king agrees with Festus that Paul's not guilty of the Jews' accusations. Uh, they, they They don't think he's done anything wrong. But because he has appealed to Caesar, he has to go to Caesar. And so Agrippa and Festus arrange for Paul to board a ship uh, in Caesarea and to make his trip to Rome. Now, while Paul is on the trip, he is placed under the charge of a military unit called the Augustan Cohort. And the centurion, the leader of this military unit, who's in charge of Paul, make sure he arrives safely, make sure he eats, make sure he's taken care of, is a man named Julius. The Jews have already desired, expressed a desire to kill Paul. And that's the main goal of this military escort, is to keep him safe. Uh, many people have... Uh, verbally expressed their desire to kill him, uh, to uh, set an ambush against him. And Paul needs protection. He needs a a detail uh, protection from the military. And so that's what he's provided. The name Augustan Cohort simply describes a group of soldiers. And this particular military unit took its name from the famous Roman emperor, Augustus Caesar. Paul's not the only prisoner on this ship. There are many other prisoners who take the trip. Uh, Most of these prisoners are not going to Rome in order to have their cases heard by Caesar. They've already had their trials. They've already been pronounced guilty. They're going to Rome for sentencing. And this is one of the reasons why Paul is granted privileges by the centurion. He's not guilty. Uh, Later we'll see uh, that the centurion Julius uh, allows Paul to be cared for by his friends. The other prisoners don't receive this benefit. Uh, Later we'll see how the other prisoners, when they try to escape the ship, they're almost killed. If they were in the same position as Paul, meaning as someone who was not guilty, the soldiers would not have tried to kill them. Under the Roman law, an uncondemned Roman citizen cannot be put to death. The ship that Paul boards is called the Adramidium. Uh, It's uh, docked at a seaport just north of Caesarea called Adramis. It's a cargo ship. It was used to import and export goods. Uh, Since this ship is heading the direction that Paul and the prisoners needed to go, they're boarded and they take the trip west. Uh, People who sailed the open seas in the first century were very superstitious. 
And we'll see that in this chapter. Uh, They didn't have the weather channel like we do. Their safety depended on what they believed the gods. And so most of them were very, very religious. Paul is joined by Aristarchus. He's a disciple from the city of Thessalonica in the Macedonian region. Uh, Aristarchus is mentioned in uh, several other places of the New Testament. In Colossians chapter 4, Aristarchus is called Paul's fellow prisoner. In Philemon verse 24, Paul calls Aristarchus my fellow worker. We also know that Luke is on the ship with Paul. How do we know that? Because the author of the book of Acts uses the pronoun we. He says we set sail. We were joined by Aristarchus. These are the friends that the centurion allows Paul to have fellowship with on the ship. In the ancient world, friendship was greatly valued. Friends demonstrated their loyalty. Friendships transcended disagreement. No one got mad over a disagreement. Uh, If if there was to leave, right? What parting sweet sorrows was true in the first century. Uh, friends grieved when they had to part from one another. Their memories cherished in the relationship. When it comes to the church, our fellowship is grounded in the fellowship of the Trinity. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ And the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The church is united together by the Trinity. The Father calls each one of us into the body. The Spirit does the work of actually grafting us in and adopting us into the family of God. And we enter the body through faith in Jesus Christ. Although we are many members We are many members of the same body. And in that body, there is joy, there is peace, there is fellowship. Arguments quickly settled. Sins are quickly forgiven. There is joy. There is peace. The ship finally leaves the dock. The captain chooses to sail in between the island of Cyprus and the coast of Cilicia, uh, instead of hitting the open seas. Why? Why does he do that? Why does he, why does he uh, choose to sail in between the coast of Galatia and the island of Cyprus? Why not just head out for the open seas? Both routes are dangerous. But the open seas is more dangerous. If the ship is hit with a storm while in the open sea, as we'll see later, there's no place for safety. But if the ship approaches a storm between the island and the coast, between two bodies of land, there's plenty of options for the ship to dock. If the ship would have to make an emergency docking, there's the ability to do that. The ship does 
battle some wind, uh, but it finally makes it to Myra, which is the southern part of Galatia, and it docks. In verse 6, the crew, the prisoners, and the cargo, they all board another ship called the Alexandrian, and they use the island of Crete as shelter from the storm. The second scene is verses 9 through 12. And this scene describes Paul's failure to intervene. Because of the strong wind, the trip hasn't made much progress. The timing of the trip is indicated by the reference to the fast. This fast was part of the Jewish holiday, Yom Kippur, or what the scripture calls the Day of Atonement. In late October was this fast. Instead of eating, the Israelites would bring their grain to the temple and offer it as thanksgiving to God. They would do this every day for seven days. And then on the last day was the Day of Atonement. On this day, the entire people of God would repent of their sin, and then they would hold a feast to celebrate uh, the sins being forgiven by God. And so for those seven days, they're a fast. They don't eat any food. It's also important to know that this trip uh, takes place in the fall with winter approaching. This time of year, very dangerous to sail uh, in this area. Uh, scant daylight, long nights, cloud cover, poor visibility, Winds, obviously, snow. People usually avoided the open seas during this time of year. And since Paul has extensive knowledge of traveling, I mean, he's made three separate mission trips where each one of them he's boarded a ship. He sailed these seas before on several occasions. He knows the region, he knows the elements. Therefore, he informs the staff and the crew of the great danger and the potential loss of cargo, the loss of ship, even the loss of their lives. Paul's not speaking here as a prophet. Uh, he's speaking with someone who has experience. Later, we'll see that Paul does speak uh, as a prophet because he does hear from the Lord. The captain of the ship doesn't take Paul's advice. Uh, the owner of the ship don't take Paul's advice. They reject what he has to say. Are you familiar with the story of the Titanic? Remember how the designer of the ship and the captain ignored weather warnings? How'd that turn out? Our story in Acts is starting to follow that story. The third scene describes the storm and the loss of hope. It's in verses 13 through 20. At first, everyone is relieved when the wind doesn't appear to be that strong. However, the seas are unpredictable. The ship does sail close to the shore. Um, Luke reports that they lay anchor, uh, means that they dropped the anchor, uh, and it causes the ship to slowly drift. They have control of the ship. Uh, the winds uh, are restricted with their control of the vessel. 
But this is just a calm before the storm. Despite taking the safety precautions that Paul advised, disaster strikes. The violent wind is called a northeaster. It's a windstorm, obviously, that comes from the northeast. The ship is, is battered by the storm. The storm is so powerful that these men are unable to steer the ship. And the storm actually becomes the pilot. The only protection that the ship has is a, is a small island located between Crete and Malta. But they don't make it there. They miss the island. The northeaster, although very violent, is also kind of a blessing for the ship, really. Because since the winds come from the northeast, it's actually pushing the ship towards land. The quicker the ship can dock, the safer it is for the crew. The ship continues to be battered by the windstorm. The crew begins to jettison some of the cargo. Since the ship is taking water, the goal is to make the ship lighter so that the ship can sit on top of the water. The tackle is what's thrown overboard. It's the main cargo that's tossed. It would have contained unused gear. It would have significant weight to it. Ditching the gear does save the ship from sinking, but Luke says they were adrift at sea for several days. Two weeks, 14 days. There was too much cloud cover. They couldn't even see the sun. Everyone thought they were going to die at sea. The fourth scene is verses 21 through 26. It includes Paul's second intervention and his prophecy. Now that Luke has set the stage, the entire crew is hopeless. They're in dire straits. Paul's faith is demonstrated. He's encouraged by a divine encounter. No one on board has eaten for several days. They're all scared. Paul has already warned them to not sail this particular route. They rejected him, but there's still hope. And what is the hope? That God will deliver them. Paul encourages a crew that he has seen and heard from an angel sent from God, the God that he worships. The God that he worships is the one that has intervened. Not their gods, his God, the true, the living, the one God. He's the one that has looked down from heaven and has pitied them. What did, this, what did this angel of God say to Paul? He says, the ship will be destroyed, but no one will die. You're going to go to Rome. The fifth scene puts God's promise to the test. In verses 27 through 32, the ship continues to drift at sea. Deliverance seems far away, although God's promised it. Now, this is now, they're approaching the 14th day, lost at sea. According to Luke, the ship was being driven across the Adriatic Sea, which is located in central Mediterranean. 
They have been tossed over 400 miles by this windstorm. About midnight, the sailors think they've come close to land, so they begin to take a series of soundings, which involves testing to see how deep the water is. They fear that they're going to run aground, and so four anchors are lowered from the stern, and they wait for morning. They hope that the sun will come up, and they'll be able to actually see how far they are from land. Some of the sailors during the night, they're nervous, and so they try to secretly lower the lifeboat because they want to escape the ship. But Paul, alerted, says to them in a warning that you'll die if you do this. If, if you leave this ship, if you try to save yourself, you'll end up losing your life. You'll starve, you will drown. You need to trust my God. And so they do. The soldiers demonstrate a a great act of faith. They cut away the lifeboat. The lifeboat's lost to sea. That's a big decision. When they cut that lifeboat away, their soldiers are putting their faith in what Paul has told them. The sixth scene appears in verses 33 through 38. Paul encourages the crew to eat. According to Paul, according to Luke, Paul breaks bread and they begin to eat. Many scholars believe that this breaking of bread is the Lord's Supper. I do not agree with them. Does the breaking of bread describe the Lord's Supper in the New Testament? It does. The New Testament uses that phrase, breaking of bread, several times in the New Testament to describe the Lord's Supper. But the phrase breaking of bread is also used in the New Testament to describe a fellowship meal. Acts chapter 2, verse 46 is an example of the breaking of bread in the houses. Also, from what we know about Paul's belief and what he has taught about the Lord's Supper, I don't believe he would take the Lord's Supper with unbelievers. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Lord's Supper is to be remembered by the saints. It is an act of faith in believing in the Lord Jesus Christ's death, his blood and body broken and and shedding blood for you. After the entire crew eats, they take the leftover food and they throw it into the water. The final scene is the seventh scene and that covers the actual shipwreck. The next morning, the sun comes up, the land can be seen. Uh, The sailors don't know where they are, uh, but it's still land and it's still safety. The anchors are thrown back over and they try to guide the ship towards the beach. Why wasn't the land recognizable? Because if you look at a map of Paul's voyage to Rome, the traditional route to Rome would have been straight up the Adriatic Sea and they would have approached Rome on the east coast. 
but the wind has driven them so far off their course that they now have to enter Rome, approach Rome on the west coast. And none of these sailors have been this far. As the ship makes its way to land, the Luke says it, it strikes a reef, the bow becomes stuck, the stern breaks apart. This is a real shipwreck. The initial destruction is caused by hitting the ground, but further damage is caused by the waves crashing into the vessel. The prisoners want to jump ship. The soldiers don't want the prisoners to escape and make it to land alive, so they decide to kill them. But the centurion, he wants Paul to be spared, and so he tells the soldiers to stand down. The centurion orders the men who can swim to go ahead and jump overboard, but those who cannot swim, they were ordered to use a piece of furniture to float on. And according to Luke, all the men made it safely to land. What a story. Before we end our service and transition to the Lord's Supper, I want to address two different things. First, I want to address God's deliverance. When the Bible addresses God's deliverance, the scripture says God's deliverance is certain, but we must wait for it. The people of God are promised by God to be delivered. God will deliver you. That's his promise to you. I will deliver you. But we must be patient. God promises to deliver his people from the hands of unrighteous men. God promises to deliver his people from wrath, from temptation, from sin, and from death. Although it may appear that the wicked are advancing in this world and that they may escape future punishment, the Bible says that isn't a reality. The wicked do not go unpunished. And because God punishes the wicked, he also promises to deliver the righteous from them. He promises to deliver the righteous out of the midst of unrighteousness. Do you hate the wickedness of this world? Does your soul lament over the celebration of sin? Do you get frustrated at your own personal sin? Man, I I know I'm not the only one That feels helpless against sin. God promises to deliver us from this evil generation. He promises to deliver us from sin. A picture of this deliverance is in the story of the Exodus. When God delivered the Hebrews from their slavery to the Egyptians, this was a type of deliverance from sin. The Egyptian slavery represented the people of God's slavery to sin and death. For the Hebrews, think back in the book of Exodus. What act symbolized their freedom from slavery? 
the smearing of the land's blood over the doorpost. God did not deliver the Egyptians. He delivered only those who smeared the lamb's blood over the doorpost. Before they were redeemed, the Hebrews were trapped. They were captives. And in the same way, men are trapped in sin. We are slaves. We are captives to sin. And in the same way that the Hebrews smeared that blood over their doorpost to redeem them from their slavery, Jesus' blood redeems us from our slavery to sin. When it comes to slavery to sin and redemption, their slavery, the Hebrew slavery to Egypt and our slavery to sin, very similar. The Bible speaks that our deliverance from evil, temptation, from sin, from death, certain. Jesus says, if, if this were not so, I, I would have never told you. But he does. But the Bible, Jesus also tells us that we must wait for our deliverance. Can we have the confidence right now that we will be delivered by God? Absolutely. But the reality of deliverance isn't fully experienced until we get to heaven. We cannot fully experience deliverance while we are still in this world. Upon our entrance into heaven, that is when we will experience God's deliverance from all of our enemies. The last thing that I want to address before we take the Lord's Supper is trusting the Lord. The basic definition of faith is trust. When the scripture talks about trusting the Lord, it's talking about taking God at his word. It talks about, it, it's, it's describing believing him, not merely believing in him, but believing him. Trusting in his word, trusting his ways. And so faith Trusting God is the key to our relationship, to being a son of God. There's no relationship without faith. There's no relationship without trust. Why? Because God only has pleasure in the man who has faith in him. God says that without faith, without trust, it's impossible to please him. So without faith, apart from trust, we're lost and we're dead. But here's the most important thing about faith, about trusting God. Trusting God does not exist and it does not come about by our own power. It is a gift from God. God grants to us faith, and trust. That's why salvation is certain. 
because it doesn't depend upon us. It, it depends upon God. It's on God's strength. It's on God's mercy. It's on God's grace. God grants us the gift. We don't earn this. Therefore, it's impossible for us to lose it or it's impossible for us to have it taken away. So therefore, because it is a gift and it's certain, if you believe God, if you sit here this morning and you're listening to these words and you say, yes, I believe God, I believe what he says is true, that is a sign of your salvation. Not that if you believe in God, but if you believe God, demons believe in him. Demons know that God exists. They know about him. They know these things. But because they have this knowledge in God, and that's all they have is knowledge of him, they tremble. But the saints, those who are saved, not only believe in God, but they also believe him. Notice the difference in the prisoners, the sailors, the crew, uh, the centurion. They had belief in God. But notice what happened, the disposition changing when they believed Paul's God, not believed in him, they trusted him. When God told Paul that none of you will lose your life, they sat down and ate. They believed him. <clears throat> 